0: Hello and welcome to this Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad on the topic, St Justin Martyr. This June 2007 recording comes from one of Lumen Verum's Friday Evening Apologetics Lectures at St Michael the Archangel Parish in Belfield. Robert Haddad is the Head of New Evangelization at the Catholic Education Office in the Archdiocese of Sydney. The by the Eucharistic prayer set down by Him, and by the change of which our blood and flesh is nourished, is both the flesh and blood of <coughs> the incarnate Jesus. The apostles in the memoirs which have which are called Gospels, have thus passed on that which was enjoined upon them. That Jesus took bread and, having given thanks, said, "Do this in remembrance of Me." This is My body. And in like manner, taking the cup and having given thanks, He said, "This is My blood." and of this to them only. Now, it's really staggering that St. Justin included such an open statement of the Church's faith in the Eucharist to pagan Roman emperors, when they were particularly um, prejudiced by the concept that the Christians were cannibal and the term that we find in the writings of the Church Fathers is that the Christians engaged in Thaestian feasts, that is, they ate human flesh. And that undoubtedly was an accusation that was held against Christians because it permeated eventually through Greek or Roman society that these Christians were doing something and they claimed to be eating someone's flesh and drinking their blood. But Justin did this in a section the last eight chapters of his first apology, where he was outlining in general Christian rituals, starting with baptism and then with the Eucharist and then with the liturgy as such in order to show that they were innocent, in order to show that therefore the, the persecution of Christians was unjust and that Christians should be given judicial justice and religious liberty That's essentially what Justin sought. Anyway, let's now turn to the rhetorical side of St Justin. Uh, And I'm going to be doing a lot of reading, I apologise for this, because it's just been fresh material that I've put together, so I'm not overly familiar with it. Uh, Just as another point before I move on with Justin, if you're wondering why it's ever important or why we even bother looking at the writings of men or women but here in the case specifically men 18 centuries ago and why it's important for work and apologetics so I'd like to refer you to the latest Fidelity magazine page 21 which accounts to significant conversions in the United States this year two men that have just been received into the Catholic Church in the last couple of months actually both in April one of them is a university professor of philosophy, Robert Coons, from Austin, Texas, who's, who was a Lutheran and was received with the Catholic Church. And the, the second, is actually more important, so to speak, if you can say that, is the is Professor Francis Beckwith, who's 46, and he was an actual Catholic up until the age of 14, but then became evangelical. He was the president of the US Evangelical Theological Society with a membership of 4,300 American evangelical pastors. Both of these men converted, and it's here in the article, because of their readings of the writings of the early church fathers, which convinced them that the early church was inherently, essentially, the same Catholic church. It's the Catholic church. The externals might have developed and changed, but the fundamental doctrines are the same. Uh, By the way, Professor Beckwith used to receive on average 90 emails a day. He now receives 2,000 a day, and many of them are abusive emails from evangelicals who are just astonished that a man of his calibre could have done such a thing. Obviously, they don't understand. Obviously, it's because they just don't know the early church fathers, or or as Professor Coons himself says clearly, they receive a very slanted, uh, eclectic version of the church fathers, meaning only selected chosen pieces that would suit their line of argument, etc. Alright. The, I'll start off with a quote from a scholar. Now, not all these, in fact, only one of these scholars I'm going to quote to you tonight is, well, only two are actually Catholic. Uh, in this area, when you're studying a degree at a, a university, you are not expected to confine yourself to looking at Catholic scholars. But what I will say here is that, sadly, outside of those men or women that we're familiar with in Orthodox Catholicism, that... Know the fathers and write about them. In the world of academia, there's very, very few really well equipped Catholic, Orthodox Catholic writers in this, in this particular world of academia. Of course, it's a world we've essentially lost to a large degree in the last 40 years. It's just been ripped out of our hands. But um, at the same time, not everything that these academics say, even if they're Protestant or Jewish or secular, is wrong. There, there are insights that are worthwhile uh, fishing for and incorporating into any orthodox discussion on these points. Uh, Grant is one of the fa- more famous writers on the early church, particularly the second century Greek apologists, and he has a book t- that, in that title, The Greek Apologists of the Second Century. He says that apologetical literature emerges from minority groups. Now he's talking about the 2nd century here. Okay. Minority groups that are trying to come to terms with the larger culture within, within which they live. And of course that's the Greco-Roman culture of that time. The apologist tries to interpret his own culture, that is the Christian culture that he's brought up in, uh, from the religious, philosophical, artistic viewpoint, as the case may be, to the broader group. And that means the apologists are seeking to try and obtain at first, at first instance, but not only this, a mode of with the Greco-Roman world, a, a, a mode of living harmonic, harmonic, in harmony with a hostile world. They're firstly seeking uh, to be freed from the persecution as a first step, so and then putting forward arguments to try and convince their persecutors that, listen, we have things in common, we are not what you think, and if you know the truth about us, you will desist from the persecution and give us religious liberty in the same way the Greco-Romans, particularly the Romans, afforded religious liberty en masse to all sorts of religions that came particularly from the East. Baal divinities from Syria, Mithraism from Persia, Isis, Serapis worship from Egypt. These were all legal in the Roman Empire. So if the Christians, Christians could show them, listen, we're harmless. We are a benefit to not only to ourselves, but to the empire. That might perhaps convince their addressees to lift the legal sanctions on the Christians. That was the hope in any case. Rokia, who's a Jewish scholar on Justin refers to these same words of Grant and puts it in these terms. The distinguishing feature of the apologists is their attempt to arrive at a modus vivendi with the general culture within, the, within which they live by searching for points of contact between them. Now ever since apostolic times, apologetics has been a part of the life and mission of the church. The the Gospel of Luke and the Acts of the Apostles was an attempt to provide an apologia that is a reasoned explanation to whomever Theophilus might have been. We read in the Acts how St. Paul, while in Rome, received people, quote, at his lodgings in great numbers. From morning until evening he explained the matter to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets. End of quote. Justin inherited this spirit about 150 years later, sorry, 100 years later. At a time when those who knew the apostles were now advanced in years, and new men with new thoughts needed to rise to engage with the Greco-Roman world, both more aware of and hostile towards Christianity. Concerning the Christian apologists of the second century, Grant says some simply trying to vindicate their own culture and religion that is, to argue why it is better, superior or inherently good and usually trying to prove that theirs is the more ancient, more authentic and more expressive of common values. Another scholar, Young, sums up their efforts in terms of justification to quote, justification of their unpopular and that is from the point of view of the Greek or Roman world unpopular, um, in the potentially dangerous decision to turn their backs on the classical literature inherited from antiquity and the customs of their forefathers. And it certainly was more than potentially dangerous. The legal situation of Christians in the 2nd century is subject to some debate, but the standard legislation that we can point to that set the legal framework for the Christians, was that of Trajan, the Emperor Trajan, who wrote a written reply in 111 AD to the governor, Pliny the Younger, who wrote to him first. Now Pliny was really somewhat perplexed as to what to do with all the Christians in his region, and these Christians were in such large numbers, and it's Basically, this was the fruit of the work of St Peter, who worked in those regions in two separate occasions. Uh, from the year 50 to 54, and from the year 58 to 62, he evangelised those regions. And now, 50 years later, we're having generation after generation of Christians swarming everywhere. And Cleaning could see, for example, that and he actually says this in his letter to Trajan, that... Um, the meat markets are going bankrupt because the Christians will refuse to buy what we call ideolites, And ideolites the root word idol, are meats that have been sacrificed to idols. And Clean uh, is asking Trajan for advice on what to do. The situation before Trajan was really a common law situation going back to you know, a customary situation on how to deal with the Christians, going back to the time of Nero. Charging responds by saying, "Look, do not hunt down the Christians, because that's bad policy and it's against the spirit of our times. But if they're informed to you, that is, if they're dogged, then you are to put them on trial, and you are to make them swear to the genius of the emperor and/or the uh, acknowledge the Greco-Roman gods. If they refuse, they are to be executed. And those who recant." that is, those who apostatise, you are to monitor them afterwards because we, re- we remain suspicious of them. And this, this view basically, essentially said that Christians were to be tried, not to be hunted down, but when put before the courts, governors, magistrates, would be tried and put to death simply for being Christian. That is, nomen christian order, holding the Christian name without proof of any other crimes being proved against them. Now, about a couple of decades later, we have Hadrian issuing another response to a governor, in which he modifies this. And he basically says, well, we are not to hunt them down, fair enough, but neither are we we to respond to mob accusations. And if Christians are brought before courts, magistrates, I'm paraphrasing the essential call I'm giving you, they cannot be put to death unless you do actually establish they are guilty of what the Romans called flagitia, that is crimes. If they are committing incest, if they are sacrificing their children, if they are guilty of cannibalism, as the popular (laughs) colonists were floating around accusing the Christians of well if they are proven then put them to death but if not, they are not to be put on trial and executed simply for being Christian this was a significant um, well basically it amounted in a sense to uh, a a form of religious liberation for the Christians and Justin's uh, critical issue here in addressing his apologies to the emperors, is that the governors of various provinces, and even the prefect of Rome, who administered capital uh, punishment, were ignoring what Hadrian said. That's why Hadrian's legislation is attached to the back of Justin's first apology. Because he's basically saying to Antoninus, who is the adopted son of Hadrian, look what your dad said. This is the law that your dad put in place. This is what is being ignored. All we're asking for is that what Hadrian laid down is followed by the magistrates and the governors and the prefects. That's it. It was really a, a, a non-threatening argument to the empire. Okay, anyway, moving on. The next quote comes from Barnard, who was a Catholic scholar on justice. The overall aim of Christian apologists was more broad and ambitious. Apologia, or the case for the defense, embraced far more than the refutation of attacks, and that was not difficult because they were so uh, wild, these accusations. It wasn't hard for the Christian apologists to show that they weren't worshipping the head of a donkey. It was based on the magnificent defense that Socrates had made at his trial before the people of Athens. Now this document, the defense of Socrates, was actually written by Plato. And the scholars believe well, this set the standard, this was a standard literary device that the Christian apologists themselves imitated. And there's nothing wrong with that, because Socrates was a hero among the f- philosophical elite. And there were aspects of what he stood for which the Christians could very easily adopt to serve their own cause. I mean, Socrates died for the truth. He stated it, And he died for belief in one God. Now, if Socrates could do that, and he was a superstar for the philosophical elite, and we have to remember that Antoninus and Marcus Aurelius were philosophers. Emperors, yes, but they were philosophers, and they were stoic philosophers. So they had a very for pagans, a very high level of natural morality that they practiced. Anyway, if um, the Christians modeled themselves in a sense and Justin certainly did, on extracting from the example of Socrates and the apology written by Plato to formulate his own apology and arguments. And of course he did, because Justin was a, a philosopher. He was a philosopher before he was a Christian. He was a Platonist, last of all, among four types of philosophical schools that he ventured through before converting to Christianity. And throughout the rest of his life, when Justin taught, and he only had seven students in the end, but numbers don't count. When Justin taught, or when Justin debated in public, he always wore the garb of a philosopher. He never changed his official clothing. Always a layman, but always dressed as a philosopher. And this was deliberate because he was arguing that Christianity, yes, of course it's a religion. And it's the true religion. It's the worship of the true God and Christ as the Messiah. Etc. But the way he proposed it, he packaged it, is that it is the true philosophy. You follow philosophy? you converts to a philosophy? I'm showing you the True and perfect philosophy. And that was an argument intended to disarm the his addressees, his audience. He said, Okay, we're open to a, to listen to a philosophy. Nothing wrong with it. They're doing that all the time. We read it in the Acts of the Apostles when when St. Paul's in Athens. They're ready to listen to anything. Okay, moving on with Barnard. So the Christian apologists therefore set themselves the wider task of showing how Christianity was the embodiment of the noblest conceptions of Greek philosophy. So they didn't throw out the baby with the bathwater. They looked at philosophy and said, okay, we'll keep this, you know, we'll build on this, we'll develop this, okay, we'll purify philosophy with revelation, cast off this and cast off that, etc. But they kept essential core values... Discovered by the philosophers because, naturally speaking, they were true, and was the truth par excellence. That is, Christianity was the truth par excellence. Their object was not only to appeal for toleration, but that was normally the starting point. But even more to win their readers to the Christian faith, and that's evident in Justin's writings. There's no doubt, he always comes, falls back to that. Okay, give us freedom, give us liberty were good for the empire, and then consider Christianity, you know, etc. He always puts that in to try and convince his addressees to consider it. And we'll see what type of argument that is soon enough. In addition, they were concerned with questions of thoughtful people and populace. You see, we don't, when we think of pagans, for us, we think of people who were, mean we think of the Greek or roman world, what do we think, you know? It, it, it decayed and became immoral and corrupt and, and all that. Yes, that's all true. But pagans, many of them were, were, were learned, were intelligent, were inquisitive, and they were steeped in philosophy, and they are steeped in traditions, and they are steeped in ethics, and they are thoughtful and intelligent people. And you just can't come up to them and say, "Listen, you know, you believe in the God of the Jews, and Jesus is the Messiah. It says so in the Bible. Why don't you accept it?" it it's not that—that's not an acceptable argument, at, you know, prima facie to. You know, Greco-Roman philosophers who have a thousand years of their own tradition to back them up. Why should we give credibility to your philosopher, a crucified Jew, criminal, put, put the death on a gibbet in Palestine 130 years ago? We've got Homer. You know, we've got We've got Socrates. We've got Plato. We've got Aristotle. We've got the giants of the ancient world and you're a newcomer from the boondocks of the desert and pretending to know it all. This is what the apologists had to deal with. Okay. Now, we're going to have a look. The next point here, we're going to have a look at uh, the apology. Apology as a form of writing, as a literary device, as they say. And its relationship to petitions to the Roman emperors. Why is this important? Because the apologists for the most part, were addressing their apologies to the Roman emperors, or to the Roman Senate, or in the case of Tertullian, local governors. Tertullian comes later in the scene and writes to Roman governors as distinct from the emperors, because he knows the history of those before him who have written to the Roman emperors. They didn't end up having that much success. So he tried the tactic of writing to the local governors. Um, and so the Christians had to frame their apologies in a legal format, because when you're approaching the Roman emperors, there was a very formal procedure. I always, when I think about this, I think about something that happened last year when Sheikh Haleli, here our friend in Lekemba, said to John Howard, suggested to John Howard to convert to Islam. Now, if you were to, if I was to say to you, look, I'm going to go to Canberra tomorrow, I'm going to give John Howard this book. I'm going to say, look, John, have a read of this and get back to me. You think that's, I, know, I mean, it's a nice cute way, of, you know, you think it's a reasonable way of doing it, but for a man who's the head of a nation and is extremely busy and is in the political troubles he's in at the moment, you don't really expect him to labour through this word for word. Right, so, you know, it's a, it's, the argument applies even more so to emperors who were considered as gods and been re- receiving petitions from people who were outlawed. It, 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 so a more accurate analogy for today is that you've got President Bush receiving a petition from Al-Qaeda to consider Islam. If they give him a 400-page book, do you think George Bush is going to go out of his way to read it? He's so ill-disposed that Al-Qaeda is not going to even bothered. If it is read, it's going to be read by administrators or officials or the CIA or whatever who examine the text. But he's not going to personally read it. The earliest Christian apologists appeared during the reign of the Emperor Hadrian. It's from 117 to 138. And in their classical phase lasted until the reign of Commodus, 180 to 192. Hence coinciding with the, as they say, the brilliant period of Roman life. The first apologist was Quadratus, who composed his apology in defence of Christianity and presented it to Hadrian while Hadrian was visiting Athens in 125. Emperors at times did a tour of the empire, and Hadrian was in Athens, and Quadratus took the opportunity to write to him. Some some speculate that that is why Hadrian wrote such a directive to the local... That, That directive I mentioned earlier to that local governor, Mundanus, his name was, which was rather lenient towards the Christians. Perhaps Hadrian, considering what Quadratus had put in his petition, you know, modified the Roman legal position towards Christians. It's, It's speculation. Aristides of Athens followed, who addressed his apology for the faith, most probably to the emperor Antoninus, somewhere between 140 and 145. The suggested occasion for this apology was the charge of sexual immorality by the famous Roman rhetorician, Fronto. Fronto was actually tutor as well, he had a very eminent position in the empire because he was a rhetorician, but that was not for that reason, but he was a personal tutor of the children of Antoninus Pius, the adopted children. He had two adopted boys, which, was Marcus, which were Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus. This was the system in place in the second century empire. Um, after the terrible times from Nero to Domitian, it was thought, okay, to bring stability to the imperial leadership of Rome, the emperor would nominate someone, would be his successor. And that would be a rather young person and would rear that boy as his own adopted son. And before the emperor died, he's already elevated one of those boys to be co-emperor with him. You know, just to train him up, apprentice emperor, so to speak. And that's why you have Justin. He's addressing his apology to Antoninus Pius, he had about seven or eight names, and it wasn't just Antoninus Pius, Antoninus Hadrianus, blah, blah, blah. and to Marcus Aurelius and Lucius Verus, because they were co-emperors at the time. And this is this is how experts date the apology by looking at who he's addressing it to. They can know that well, it must have been after this. We <coughs> know from Roman history that Marcus Aurelius becomes co-emperor at a certain date. 147. So Justin must have written this after 147. That's one way they work out dates. Uh, in subsequent decades appeared the following apologists Apollinaris of Laodicea, Melito of Sardis, Tatian the Syrian, became a heretic in the end, Gnostic heretic. He was one of Justin's students but ended up becoming a heretic. Athenagoras of Athens and Miltiades. All these wrote in around 176 to 180 in response to the persecution that broke out in Gaul under Marcus Aurelius. Another apologist of the time, Theophilus of Antioch, wrote to a high-ranking official in the last phases of this persecution, that was Autolichus. Justin appeared and wrote in the midst of these men between 140 and 165. And I'll just repeat what I said earlier. We have three extant works of Justin. First, Second Apology and Dialogue with Trifle. We have very, with undoubted evidence he wrote another major work, the Syntagma, which is sadly entirely lost, but some of his experts believe that maybe St. Irenaeus, when he wrote his gigantic Summa against Gnosticism, undoubtedly would have used Justin's work against Gnosticism as the basis for his work. And according to Eusebius, that um, we are pretty sure that Justin wrote another major apology which is completely lost. The second apology is not really a full blown apology like the first apology. It's much shorter, it's like an appendix, it's an afterthought to deal with a, uh, a horrendous injustice, legal <coughs> injustice that occurred soon after he finished writing his first apology. The writings of the apologists were mostly legal documents. Petitions requesting the state to carefully investigate the real nature of Christianity. In presenting their communications, the apologists needed to respect and follow the proper classical literary and rhetorical conventions of the day. Obviously they had to. Otherwise they'd just be treated with even more contempt. Remember that they were already in a disadvantaged position. They were already illegal. So if they're not going to follow the rules on how to petition an emperor, they had less than no hope. and this was a general concern of all ancient writers, to follow the proper rules of petition and rhetoric. This need was heightened by the fact that most of the apologists sought to address the emperors directly. Imperial hearings included both embassies as well as legal cases. So emperors heard cases themselves, undoubtedly, as was occupied most of their time during the day. Embassies are officials from other nations or regions peoples their political legal cases are um, issues relating to the law you know um, common legal cases that the emperor himself was asked to decide despite their workload the emperors were known to occasionally allot generous amounts of time to hear the speeches of ambassadors sent to them to obtain release for the relief for those whom the ambassador represented. Actually there was the, 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 what there was the, there was a water clock that um, you know how we understand for example got, we we use sand in the hourglass as a timer or we used to. The Romans the, the emperor used as a timer a water clock that dripped water into another bowl and you had that much time to speak. So when the water ran out actually <laughs> the time was like, But the Roman emperors were at times well disposed to give orders, look, just add more order, I need more time to hear this, give them more time. But of course there was a limit to how much time the emperors would give. They also usually devoted countless hours deciding court cases, both making the decision and announcing the same. In cases marginal to the affairs of the empire, The emperor often cut the whole procedure short. He said, look, he's frustrated. I've had enough, okay. Let's get to the crux of the matter. And he'll just ask individual questions of the two parties to settle the issue quickly. With the Christian apologists, what we have, or what the scholars say here, is that they really developed a new type of petition which was not the norm at all beforehand. Uh, a mixed form of apology and petition. Faced with both mistreatment and exclusion from the normal benefits of Roman rule, the apologists appeared to view their situation much as did villagers who petitioned the emperor against undisciplined and unjust local officials. For example, in Justin's first apology, in the, uh, there's, there's a mixture of the technical language of petition, how you normally address the emperors and how you normally ask them for things, with words such as explanation, um, evidence in Justin's intention to include not only to re- not only to request something, but to include important information about what the Christians believed in, their behaviour and worship. Thus we have emerging apology enclosed, wrapped up in the form of a petition and subservient to the purpose of petition. And as I say, this was a literary vehicle with no previous precedent in the Greco-Roman literary tradition. Alright, now let's look specifically at a basic rush through rhetoric and how the Christians employed rhetoric. And you'll find really this is not rocket science. You will find that look, we do this all the time. We just didn't, um, we just didn't know the technical, you know, terms to describe what we're doing every day ourselves. Now, rhetoric—a simple uh, definition of it—is that it's the art, the instrument of persuasion. So we've been doing that here in these talks for you know, 12 years, and that's what we do all the time. It's the art form of persuasion. But the Greeks themselves refined it as a as a technical discipline, and the Romans then took it up themselves. Aristotle defined rhetoric as the faculty of discovering the possible means of persuasion in reference to any subject whatever. So, of course, the possible means of persuasion would vary. So the the great rhetorician is that person who could discover what is necessary at that moment, at that time, for whatever they're asking for, addressed to a particular audience. Developed originally by the Greeks, rhetoric was adapted later by the Romans for their own oratory and writing. The most famous Roman rhetoricians were Cicero, <coughs> Seneca, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, Quintilian, and Fronto. And most students studying classics, looking at rhetoric, would study Aristotle, Seneca, and Quintilian. I remember when I went into the library just about a month ago to get. Um, some books on rhetoric, I just was overwhelmed when you see some of these ancient books and how detailed they are. I just, said, oh, forget it. I just need a basic course, you know. just need to write one chapter. I don't need to study the, the discipline as such. Um, much of classical rhetoric... For our benefit and for the benefit of the apologists was standard and uniform across the schools of thought and particular authors, which meant that it could be studied quite easily. There was a consistent, there were consistent rules about this discipline. Petitions of all kinds in the ancient world employed rhetoric. Rhetoric is divided into three kinds corresponding to the three audiences. These three kinds. Deliberative, forensic and epideictic. I think the best way to explain it to you is to give examples in the modern context of, say, Australian politics. Forensic rhetoric is looking at the past. It's the type of rhetoric that's always employed in court cases by lawyers. Looking at something in the past and giving your opinion about it. So... Uh, the lawyer would say that look, this is what happened in the past and this is what the accused did and this is why he's guilty. Or in politics, forensic rhetoric, i would say, well, let's have a look at the past. Let's have a look at my favourite government, the Whitlam government. Right? The Whitlam government, looking at it, was the worst government in Australian history, without a doubt. That's forensic rhetoric. I'm looking at something in the past and making a judgement on it. Okay, It's not that uh, difficult. Epidictic rhetoric is praise or blame of something or someone in the present. So when I do something as simple as um, a speech, it's our friend's birthday today and I'm asked to make a toast and praise uh, my friend here what a great guy you are, he's a jolly good Fowler that's actually epidictic rhetoric. I'm praising someone in the present. Or if I am to accuse someone to blame them for something in the present, <coughs> likewise, apodictic rhetoric. So, um, the, uh, the apologist, an apologist like Justin, focusing on how Christians have been treated in the past and the accusations against Christians, will be using forensic rhetoric. Look, this is the relationship between the empire and Christians in the last hundred years, and it hasn't been good and are the accusations brought against us and they're all false, and I'll give you the reason why they're false, that's forensic rhetoric and when Justin addresses the emperors at the beginning of his works and said, look you're pious, you're noble you're philosophers live up to your reputation that's epideic rhetoric he's actually praising them in the beginning to warm them up you don't go straight into it and say look You're unjust, you're persecutors, you're not going to get very far, especially if you're addressing them face-to-face. Deliberative rhetoric is looking towards the future. From the political point of view, it always relates to policy. We're getting tons of it now in the media. Right now, when you're looking at politicians discussing issues relating to IR, industrial relations, and future policy, and climate change policy. When people are discussing policy, what policy should be implemented in the future, when they're debating that in Parliament, that's deliberative rhetoric. So when Justin, and there's a sub range of deliberative rhetoric called protreptic. So when Justin says to the Emperor, the policy in place against Christians now is unjust, change. The policy, or otherwise you will face God in judgment without excuse. That's deliberative and protracted rhetoric. Deliberative, the, liberative, the dealing with of change of policy, say policy for the future, and protracted is when you're addressing someone and asking someone personally to change their course of action or change their life. So, when Christians are writing in their apologies. urging people to convert to Christianity, that that type of basic evangelisation we're all familiar with, that's petreptic rhetoric. That's trying to convince someone to change their behaviour, or to change their course of action, or to change their lifestyle. And this is entirely appropriate, because all the ancients employed these forms of rhetoric when they wrote. And we have examples from the Hellenistic period, from Philip of Macedon onwards, where petitions were put forward to local kings uh, imploring them to adopt certain philosophical lifestyles. So if pagans could address kings and say, look, adopt this lifestyle, it's good for you, it's good for the empire, then it's not inconsistent for a Christian later to come and adopt a similar form of appeal to the pagan emperors, wrapped up in philosophy. Now consider this new philosophy, Christianity. It's and only true and perfect philosophy. Justin wasn't being so outrageous when he did that, because it was a tradition that existed. Now, there was a limit. There was a custom called, in Greek, phahesia. Phahesia was, or parhesia was a, a privilege granted to philosophers to rebuke rules and get away with it. Okay, some people could do it and some people couldn't. So it was a customary concession. So Justin, as a philosopher, could invoke that privilege to rebuke emperors, but there's only so far you can go. Of course, you can't, you know, say to Nero, "You're a wife killer and you're a mother killer," which he was. But you know, you've got to be careful. There are limits on how far you could go. Obviously, common sense. Now linked with this all. Whatever tact you're taking, whether you're arguing about the past, present, or future, linked with this are what we call technically proofs. They call these proofs. Ethos, Logos, and Pathos. And again, they're Greek terms, but it's not rocket science. If you're arguing, let's keep it simple here, if you're arguing for someone to change their course of action, change their policy, or change their lifestyle. You've got to have some authority behind you. I'm asking you to, as an audience, say, pagans, to consider Christianity. Christianity is the true religion and it makes us the most moral people, but you know that I'm, that I'm a drunk, a wife beater, an adulterer. Yeah, don't listen to me. I'm a hypocrite. I lose all moral authority connected with deliberative rhetoric or whatever form of rhetoric, I must establish my moral authority. That's called ethos. And the Christian apologist would often replace his own authority to speak. I mean, who was Justin? To address the emperors and told them to change their religion to Christianity, to an illegal religion at that. Who was he? A small-time apologist. Of course he's the great St Justin for us. Feast day and all that. But who is Justin with seven students in his private little tin pot school to be trying to persuade the Empress to change? St. Justin knew this. So St. Justin replaces his his ethos is to substitute his authority with God. Change. If you don't, if you remain unjust, or you allow this unjust policy to continue, you will face God in judgment without excuse. They were his very words. You will be before God without excuse. He substitutes his own authority as ethos with God's authority to judge. Logos, we know, it means technically word, but it is the collection of the arguments that you're using to condemn or praise or to persuade and change or to praise or blame. Alright? Nothing particularly complex about that. Pathos is what emotion you use. Okay? Hence we get pathetic, pathetic argument. Now, if I was to say to you, your argument is pathetic, you probably think, well, it's hopeless, from our common understanding of the term today. But pathetic doesn't mean hopeless. It means emotive. Like when Justin is relating his conversion story in the first nine chapters of dialogue with Trifle, he's employing the pathos of love. Because when the the presbyter on the beach who confronts him with the prophets has been greater than the Greek philosophers, he said his heart burned within himself for a love of Christ and the prophets. So to future readers of the dialogue, Justin Justin is employing the pathos of love. When Justin threatens hellfire, the motive is fear and threat. That's the pathos he's employing when he's trying to convince someone to change or desist, etc. Now, in addition to proofs, there are five functions a good rhetorician needed to master for success. And Justin needed to do this both in his writings and in his, and in his street preaching, so, because he, he did both. He debated in the public forum. We know that with at least one philosopher, a cynic named Crescens. You need to master the ability to invention of arguments, proper sequencing of arguments, style or choice of words, memorization and delivery, voice and bodily gesture. Quite obvious in reality. Now, like non-Christian rhetoricians, ancient Christians endeavoured to employ the language of persuasion, obviously. The adoption of classical rhetoric was closely connected with the partial adoption by Christians of classical philosophy, originating in Platonism, Aristotelianism and Stoicism. Now this was a debate actually in second century Christianity and early first half of the third century. There was the, we well, you know how the church is always in the middle, okay, it avoids the extremes. The middle is characterised by Justin, <coughs> Irenaeus, some popes like uh, Calixtus, uh, and again another in Egypt, Clement of Alexandria, the great head of the catechetical school there. They they had the, the middle road. The hard line road is characterised by Tatian, Syrian, and Tertullian, where the hardliner said, look, philosophy is all bad. It says so on the scriptures. St. Paul condemns it, so get rid of the law. It's all corrupt. Temptation is Syrian, wrote in terms like that. And, and just in Tertullian, he's invective, you know, to attacking. His famous quote, the all-time quote when it comes to philosophy is, what has Athens to do with Jerusalem? Right? No. Meaning, we don't need Greek philosophy. To defend or promote or teach Christianity, but with Tertullian those inconsistencies, he obviously did employ philosophy. He has one of his tirades in an imbalanced moment, and unfortunately had more than one imbalanced moment. Um, Augustine would come 200 years later, another North African, and say, "What has Athens to do with Jerusalem?" Well, the midpoint between Athens and Jerusalem is found in Rome, which sums it up brilliantly. In other words, the moderate position ultimately prevailed. The position that Justin practiced, Irenaeus, Clement Clement of Alexandria, Calixtus, they looked at ancient philosophy and they took what was good. There were natural truths there, as I said earlier, and they pushed them forward as being consistent with Christianity, and this was to, this is what we call the argument of similitude. Christians employed this. Justin is probably his best argument. The argument of similitude: we're so similar to you in so many ways. Why do you persecute us? And of course, where the bath water was a bit polluted, that was thrown out while keeping the baby. So the Christians plugged the gaps. The revelations filled the gaps, the errors that did exist in these particular philosophers. But I guarantee you, if you looked at Stoicism, for example, and the writings of some of the best Stoic philosophers, like Eumenius of Apamea, for example, their vitriol against fornication, homosexuality, divorce, were parallels virtually identically with Christianity. And this is important. There were were pagan philosophers who who saw Rome and the empire going down the path of moral disaster, but were helpless to do anything about it. Some Christians thought this to be idle, that is, the adoption, partial adoption of philosophy, or even a pride in worldly achievements, but ultimately the view prevailed that eloquence had a place in explaining the faith to outsiders, and deepening the practice of it among Christians. Eventually, there even developed, especially in Latin, a vigour in early Christian writing, lacking in contemporary pagan counterparts, due largely to the intensity of Christian opinion against paganism. Now, a a good Christian apology normally had the following structure. Um, It opened with an epideictic strategy, as I said earlier, praising the emperors, it was aimed to render the judge well disposed to the apologist's cause. Then there was what's called an exordium. What's an exordium? Outlining the reason why the work was written. Then we have a narratio outlined the history, the relationship between Judeo-Christianity and the Greco-Roman world. A partitio sets out the points of issue and the position of the author. The length of certain apologies resulting from the refutation of charges, okay, when, okay, some apologies went into great length, particularly Justin's first apology, refuting charges, atheism, Thaestian feast that's cannibalism, Oedipian intercourse, that's incest, indicates forensic model, in other words, that Christians are responding to charges that have been brought against them. Now, the Christian would employ uh, either confirming or refuting whatever allegation was put forth. An apodixis, or demonstration, and that's very important, Apodixis appear, is used so often to demonstration. It would provide an outline of prophecy in the life of Christ. So, Justin, for example, spends in his first apology, which is 68 chapters, from chapter 31 57, something like that, I can't remember, all about the prophecies relating to the coming of Christ and prophecies fulfilled by Christ. Old Testament prophecies. What this is, he's showing forth, is, and this is, this is controversial, I mean, what value does this have to pagan emperors who weren't Jews, who didn't believe in Old Testament prophecy? But actually, it was more valuable than we might think at first instance, because... The greco roman world certainly valued prof- ancient prophecy. They didn't necessarily discriminate whether it came from the Jews or whatever. They had Sibylline oracles. They had a culture, uh, a belief in prophecy. So if you can show that these prophecies existed eight eight hundred years, a thousand years ago, and that they were fulfilled in this particular figure, there was value in that. But to demonstrate that, that's called an apodichosis. Demonstration. Of course, when they went into the life of Christ and show how the teachings of Christ and the life of Christ is so far superior to any other pagan superhero or god man, they had what was called Theo god okay, there were heroes in the ancient pagan world. Well, Justin has to combat that. Because the accusation is, well, why is Christ any, any more? Special than ours, I mean. You claim he did this and this and this, but, you know. We have our, we have Apollinaris of Tyana. He did miracles too in the first century. They believe this. He, he also rose people from the dead. But this is serious. It's, it's enough for us to laugh, but these were serious, uh, points of objection put against the uniqueness of Christ. Apollinaris of Tyana was believed to have ascended into heaven as well. So why is Jesus so special? For Justin had to grapple with this. So when Justin's going forth and saying, well, look at the teachings of Christ, as superior to Apollinaris, because Justin can't combat using evidence that Apollinaris ascended to heaven mm-hmm. or not. But what he can fight is whether Apollinaris' teachings match Jesus on paper. They don't. Did Jesus claim any money? No. Did Jesus... Um, uh, okay, When he did miracles, did he employ material material amulets, strings, and things like that, like the miracle workers of the ancient? No, he didn't. So really, uh, the argument that Jesus employed magic could be refuted when we show, demonstrate at the that just that Jesus' miracles... For the most part, there were some instances like spittle and mud, but for the most part, Jesus' miracles were by his word alone. He didn't employ material objects, so he wasn't as subject to the accusation of magician. As if Jesus was a magician, well, more so the pagan miracle workers, because they employed material objects all the time in their so-called miracles. Um, okay, dialectic was adopted. That's controversial method. We find that right through dialogue with Trifo. Dialogue with Trifo is a dialectic. Two people going back and forth in debate. Of course, Justin's ramroding Trifo for most of the way. But it's, that's dialectic, the controversial method which Plato <coughs> Socrates, Socrates and Plato employ to teach their students to reach a conclusion. That the Christian apologists explained and used the dialectic to explain and defend Christian beliefs. Attempting to, con- uh, we've done this already, scripture was explained using the arts of definition, division, syllogistic reasoning and attic language. Now syllogistic reasoning is very simple. A is bigger than B, B is bigger than C, therefore A is bigger than C, for example put it simply. Attic language was important because it was the language of the sophisticated Greek. Cornate Greek is the language employed in New Testament scripture. Why? Because Christians are writing to Christians. They're not writing to the outside world. The letters to the Corinthians, Ephesians, they're Christians in those communities. So they're using common language. But Attic language was the philosophical the intellectual language of Athens. And so the the, the apologists employed that language deliberately to come across as sophisticated, as they did all this deliberately to come across, to be taken seriously. Nevertheless, despite adopting all these things from pagan methodology, rhetoric, etc., Christian, Christianity still possessed a distinctive rhetoric originating in Jewish attitudes found in the Old Testament and reflecting the new theology of Jesus and his apostles. Now this modern-day writer on rhetoric, Kennedy, sums it up as follows. It's not all that bad, Kennedy, as a writer on rhetoric. He's one of the better scholars, from our point of view, that is. Mm-hmm. Christian rhetoric presupposes the intervention of God in history and through the Holy Spirit in the minds of men. For the classical ethos of the speaker, authority. It substitutes divine authority given canonization in the scriptures and the revelation accorded to the church. For probable argument for probable argument as a basis of proof, it substitutes the proclamation of the Kerygma, that is it proclaims the gospel as its essential argument, or divine message. It preserves the form of Forms of inductive and deductive argument. Inductive argument is the use of examples. You find that all the time in Justin. And deductive argument, well, if this is the case, then this follows from this. For supporting evidence, it turns to miracles in the Acts of the Martyrs, and Justin used both. Justin was very strong in pointing out the miracles of, of Christ, as did the very first apologist, Quadratus, In writing to Hadrian said that there are people still alive today in the year 125 who were cured by Jesus and that might have been, no, he knew of people who were cured by Jesus and that's not impossible. They are cured in the year 30 and these people lived to the year 80 and it's now 145, Quadratus could have known them, right? So miracles has, uh, certainly had a large part to play. And for pathos, that is emotion, the Christian author threatens damnation or promises eternal life. Christian rhetoric has distinctive topics and a distinctive style based largely on the language of the psalmists and the prophets. It is also a characteristic of Christian rhetoric that whatever the text or the occasion, all details are made subordinate to one message: Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Oh, right. where are we up to? Now? <coughs> So a long way to go because I've been talking a lot. <laughs> All these pages. All right, can I do it in ten minutes? All right, I do want to touch specifically on Justin, though. A bit more on Justin. Justin criticised rhetoric, but he certainly used it. Uh, Justin would have cr- criticised more how rhetoric was abused than, than used. I mean, you can use rhetoric. You know, use car salesman type rhetoric. It's the greatest car. It, 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 great value. It's great value. Yeah, there's nothing wrong with it. It's that big-dike of the car. It's been used in a dishonest way, for example. Okay. One author, Koreski's, notes that Justin's writings there is the use of an excessive rhetorical art. Um, a, a German scholar named Wehofer Suggests that Justin's literary and rhetorical model for his first apology was, as I said earlier, was the Apology of Plato, because they had the same theme, dying for the truth. Contrary to this, another scholar named Guerra says that Aristotle's Protrepticos, change your behaviour, affords the positive model. There is also the Protreptic of Isocrates, a contemporary of Aristotle. Both of these pagan writers wrote to kings, seeking to demonstrate that philosophy was essential for practical living, with the latter adding that conversion to the philosophical way of life would also ensure arrival to the isles of the blessed. So Justin does the same, doesn't he, when he writes to the emperors? His protreptic presents Christianity to the emperors as a divine philosophy that is not only essential for right living but also to attain eternal life. Failure on the part of the empress to convert to the true philosophy will leave them without excuse before God. Other motives that are similar between Aristotle and Justin include contempt for death, that is, the love of truth to such an extent that they have contempt for death, they are willing to die for it, polemic against academics and Epicureans and the metaphors of doing battle and athletic exercise to acquire virtue. There are four main groups of arguments that Justin uses in his four apologies, four main groups, but in each group there are sub arguments. What are the four main arguments? Uh, firstly, there is the refutation of the charges against Christians. That's from chapters five to twelve. There's a loose collection of certain Christian teachings you know, and Apoddis' Christian teaching. That's from chapters fourteen to twenty two. It's an illustration of the uniqueness of Christ and the superiority of his teachings. That includes also the prophecies relating to Christ, chapters 23 to 60, and the description of Christian rituals from 61 to 67. In the chapters 5 to 6, Justin puts forward the thesis that the Christian worship of the true God is superior to the pagan worship of false deity. This thesis becomes deliberative and protracted when Justin advises the emperors in their own interest to ensure that Christians are only charged and tried for crimes and not on the basis of their Christianity. There's also a protracted argument when Justin argued that the adoption of Christianity would be more profitable to the state and the emperor by making the people of the empire better citizens. Justin, in chapters 9 to 12, uses forensic rhetoric when he refutes the charges of atheism, non-participation in the official religion and disloyalty that are brought against Christians commonly. Justin's second group of arguments is an apodicist demonstrating the parallel between the teachings of Christ and those of pagan authorities. For example, uh, as I said earlier, Christian teachings on moral conduct have similarities with Stoic philosophers. Stoics also believe that there was an end of the world by fire and if it was all right for Stoics to believe that, well, it's not so shocking for you know Christians to have a similar belief. And the um, pagans believed that, for example, Jupiter could have a son. The Roman emperor was the son of Jupiter. Well, if, if it's all right for your chief god to have a son, then it's not so outrageous for the Christian god to have a son. And this is the argument of similitude, demonstrating similitude. Uh, Abodiceus, demonstrating similitude. And all this is done so Justin can convince the emperors to, to examine Christianity and to, so that they'll be, uh, so they'll only be put on trial for crimes rather than simply for their name. When it comes to the third group of arguments, the uniqueness of Christ and the superiority of Christian teachings over those of paganism, this is an argument from the smaller to the greater. The thesis of Christ's uniqueness as the Son of God is what we call a suasiona. It's advice, seeking to achieve the protracted purpose of moving the emperors once again to heed the demand for judicial justice or face punishment from the hands of Christ. The thesis of the superiority of Christian teachings is again suosoria, and advice supporting Justin's demand for justice for the Christians. Now, when Justin uh, looks at the Christian sacraments, baptism and the Eucharist, this is the fourth argument. It, aga- it again is a sursoria, arguing that the Christian mysteries are innocent celebrations that are even superior to the pagan rites. And then Justin shows how the pagan rituals, particularly those of Mithras, Mithraic baptism, was really an imitation spawned by the demons as a preemptive effort to subvert the spread of Christianity. And again, it's by showing the innocence of Christian rituals, it's again an argument in support of judicial justice. They're innocent, therefore you shouldn't be persecuting us. Uh, <clears throat> the last chapter, chapter sixty eight, contains a peroration. I didn't put that word on the board. That's just a summing up. Recalling the propositions made in the other chapters, which follow the apologies uh, exordium or the outline of why this work is being written, the emperors may honour or despise the Christians and their teachings, but they should not treat them as public enemies. This is how he sums up his first apology: the emperors may honour or despise the Christians and their teachings, but they should not treat them as public enemies sentencing men to death simply for confession of the Christian name without proof of any crimes being committed against them. Um, I'll just finish by briefly looking at the second apology. I won't look into dialogue with Trifo because it's, it's probably made it rather tedious to continue this section because it can be a bit drawn out. Um, but with As I said earlier, the second apology was something that Justin penned probably very quickly. I'll give you a bit of historic background. My my opinion, it's not my original idea, but I accept the idea that Justin wrote the first apology in around the year 156 because he responded to the, the brutal martyrdom of Polycarp back in Asia Minor. Well, why would Justin be so concerned about that event? It was because a year earlier, well, at least in one fifty-four, while Justin was in Rome teaching and part of the church there, Saint Polycarp had come to visit Rome and had a meeting with Anacletus, Pope Anacletus, where they discussed the issue, or they argued, debated. It wasn't really an argument, but they debated the issue of when to celebrate Easter, because. The Roman Church had the custom we have now. Easter Sunday is the first Sunday after the first full moon after the Northern Hemisphere equinox, So it changes from year to year. And you Good Friday and Easter Saturday and Easter Sunday as separate celebrations. While in the East, following St John, a tradition that he put in place most probably, that they celebrated everything on the same day every year, April 14th no matter what day of the week it was. So it'd be Good Friday, Easter Saturday, Easter Saturday, Easter, we'll all celebrate on the one day. And the West was demanding that East change its practice. So Polycarp said, we can't do it, we can't change. we would follow following with St John It's about tradition. You can't tell us to change what we've been doing for whatever number of decades. So Polycarp, at the age of 84, 85, which was a gigantic age for someone to be at, at that time in history, when the average age of, of a man was mid-40s, Right? he gets on his boat and sails to Rome and meets with Anacetus. In the end, they agreed to disagree. And they left, he left, they said, according to the traditions we have, He they celebrated mass together, and then St. Polycarp went back home, and nothing was changed. This controversy was to arise again, in the 190s under Pope Victor and Pope Victor threatened to excommunicate the whole East. They didn't change their view. And Pope Victor was prevailed upon by Saint Irenaeus who was in Gaul, who was Bishop of Lyon not to do that. The Saint Irenaeus was originally from Asia Minor he'd been from uh, the community in Phrygia he was made Bishop of Leon, because Leon, most of the Christians were phrygian immigrants. Okay, so okay, I'm digressing here. I'll come back to the point in a moment. St Irenaeus persuaded Pope Victor not to excommunicate. In any case. But see, So St. Polycarp was person probably personally known to Justin, and not yeah. only personally, known, but he was an outstanding figure. You know, like, we might, we've got Pope Benedict XVI now, but you would know of the um, I'll say in the time of Pius XII in the 50s, right? You know Pius XII, but everyone knew Archbishop Fulton Sheen, okay? Well, and if Archbishop Fulton Sheen was brought up before the courts and executed summarily after being hunted down as an 86-year-old man, you would have been outraged. And it would have be been outraged if that happened. And But that's what did happen with Polycutter. He did nothing wrong. He was 86 years of age. He was just waiting, doing his Judy as a bishop, the father figure of the Christians since time immemorial, I meaning in 107, 50 years earlier, he was Bishop of Smyrna, and 50 years later, he's still Bishop of Smyrna. So no one knew anyone else, he was the great father figure of the Christians in the East, and what happened to him? The mob there in the local games there in February 156 got agitated to Christian blood. There was some plague or something that affected the region. And, and, and as Tertullian was to say 50 years later, you know, if the Nile overflows or there's famine or there's earthquakes, the mob cries out Christians to the line and Tertullian then reports what all of them to just one lion meaning there's too many of us, you can't kill us all. <laughs> right. That's what he was you know, saying there, this classic quote. It's not Christians to the lions, it's Christians to the lion, singular. Because it's, it's a, a, a rhetorician is making this point, as I just said, you don't have enough lions to kill us all because we are everywhere now. Anyway, um, so what happens to Polycarp breached all the rules of Hadrian's legislation? And charges. Because he was hunted down. And they followed him until they found him in his friends' hands. then they brought him on trial. What were the accusations? What were the crimes? None. No accusations brought. No crimes alleged. Put on trial and condemned for what? Just being Christian. The Christian name. And he's burnt a Well, they tried to, and they failed. They stabbed him to death. This breaks all the legislation. So, so Justin is outraged. So he pens this apology in protest. There's not a word mentioned of Polycar. but The principle is there. Judicial justice and religious liberty is being denied to us. This is unjust. What you pious philosophers are allowing is unjust. Anyway... He's, I don't know what's happened precisely there's a huge debate whether Justin's apology ever reached the emperors or not I believe he wrote to the emperors but we don't know if they ever received it no one knows and the big problem is that petitions, all the historic, historically, what we have today are petitions, petitions written in Greek and Justin wrote in Greek he didn't write in Latin. I thought I mean, this is a laugh. When I started studying Justin, I thought it would be easier to study. He wrote in Latin, and when I once I got committed to the topic, I found that he wrote in Greek. And sometimes I had egg on my face. So what do I do? And I just just persevered. But um, he wrote in Greek, and all the petitions we have today that exist from that were written in Greek to Roman English are not longer than two or three pages. Yet Justin's petition, if you put it together, would be. Justin's uh, first apology would be about the size of this book. It's not two or three pages. This book's uh, 120 pages. So it it tends to it tends to be an argument that look, there's no way the Romans would have considered this seriously. It would have been and it would have been too long. It just doesn't follow the rules of petition that you put towards the emperor. They would have been probably ruthlessly just passed out before, it had, before the officials had even passed it on to the emperor. Uh, there was also the tradition, Justin could have come before the emperor himself, as I said, and read it, but it was still too long for that. The second apology is different. It's much shorter. It's only 12 chapters, and it's of the proper length that could have been read by Justin personally to the emperor. What sponsors what what inspires the second petition is that there was a Christian, there was a pagan couple, and the wife converts to Christianity. And then she begins to nag her husband, and rightfully so, he's a drunk. And she's telling them, You've got to change your life, you've got to reform, you know, stop drinking, get over it, whatever. She threatens to leave him, she threatens to divorce him, actually. And she gets advice from her presbyter, the priest, the local parish priest or whatever, what we say today. And, she, and he said, no, persevere, stay with him, try and change him. This is all the second apology. And uh, he, she continues, but he has enough. So what does he do? He dogs her in to the Roman authorities as a Christian. And with, together with two, two of the servants... And what happens? She's put on trial. Three minutes. Executed. And just as outrage, So this is what they believe was followed. She just pens this apology to protest that latest outrage. And it's small, but I'll just go through chapter 12. The rhetoric is again protracted in the, in the final chapter when he says to the emperors, change, think again. And the leader To chapter 12, Justin employed the following techniques. As Logos, arguments in support of his demand for judicial justice, Justin highlighted the inconsistency of supposedly wicked men and women willingly dying heroic deaths and they could easily have avoided such by false denials. The argument was Christians are inherently immoral. And Justin says, well, if they're immoral, why are they dying such heroic deaths? Immoral people don't die heroic deaths. They could easily lie to get out of the charges, and they're not lying. That's proof that they're not be moral. As part of pathos, emotion, Justin attempted to evoke emotion by recounting the unjust way Christian servants, frail women and children were denounced and tortured into making false admissions. As part of ethos, Justin announced a Christian God as the observer and ultimate judge of all. And in denouncing those who accuse Christians of evils, they themselves committed just and employed employ the epithetic rhetoric of blame. Alright. We've done a lot of labouring there. And I could tell at times it was rather a bit tedious. But as I said, I'll finish there. You have been listening to a Lumen Verum Apologetics Lecture by Robert Haddad. For more Lumen Verum Apologetics Lectures, visit cradio.org. Dot AU